And I thought like, okay, so what if I did take a risk with myself? For me, the roads said that I, I can now go do something crazy. You know, I can, since I did this, what else can I achieve? You know, that didn't seem possible before because the roads didn't seem possible. And here I am as a Rhodes Scholar, so what else is there for me to achieve that doesn't seem possible? Hi there, and welcome to Roads Less Travelled, a series of conversations with some remarkable individuals who have in one way or another taken a road less travelled to discover their vocation. The aim behind the podcast is a pretty simple one, to share stories. And our hope is that through these stories, we can shine a light on some practical wisdom for those of us who are currently forging our own paths. My name is Sophie Ryan, and I'm an Australian Rhodes Scholar in my second year at Oxford. I hope you enjoy the journey. Hello, and welcome to Roads Less Travelled. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Tope Falaran. Tope is a Nigerian-American writer and executive director of the Institute for Policy Studies based in Washington, D.C., Tobe has won numerous awards for his writing, including the Kane Prize for African Writing and most recently the Whiting Award for his debut novel, A Particular Kind of Black Man. Now, after I read Tobe's novel, which I think really unpacks many of the themes that we're hoping to, to get into on this podcast, I just knew that we were going to have to have a conversation. So, Tobe, thank you for joining us today and for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Your, your intro flags that there is a really interesting conversation to be had here, but it doesn't really tell us that much about your story. So that's really where I was hoping to just jump straight in the deep end and, and hear more about your journey and how you've come to be where you are now. Yeah, what a question. Um, you know, I think so. I guess I could go back all the way to the beginning and I'll just do this briefly. My parents are from Nigeria. Um, I was born and raised in uh, Utah in uh, America. So it's a state in the Western part of the United States. Um, it's fairly homogenous. It's uh, sort of, uh, I'd say 90, 95% white, 90, 95% a Mormon. Um, my dad ended up there because he received a scholarship to a school called Weber State University in Ogden, Utah. Um, and so I was, my siblings and I were raised there uh, for, for many years. and. Um, I, I think it had a sort of really big impact on my identity because we were unique in so many respects. We weren't Mormon, we weren't white. Um, and, uh, and Utah in addition is a place that is kind of fiercely patriotic uh, for, uh, you know, I, for any number of reasons. So we grew up in this place that has this kind of deep abiding love for America. Um, and then a place too that um, wasn't always the most inclusive place. I, I think that my identity, at least in the beginning, was formed kind of in response to those factors, like any child would be, I suppose. Um, and I saw myself kind of like in opposition to certain things around me and accepting certain things around me. Um, I suppose the difference between my childhood and the childhood, say, of a friend that I might have had growing up was that I wasn't, I was handed an identity card upon birth. And mine said, you're a Nigerian, and that didn't make much sense to me because I didn't feel like a Nigerian. I'd have been born in the States. And everyone around me, claimed that I was an African-American, but I had no exposure at that point in my life to African-American culture. Um, so I just was, at, you know, a bit lost, I suppose you could say. Moved to Texas when I was 13, had all kinds of culture shock. You know, I was interacting with a diverse set of people for the first time in my life uh, in North Texas. There were people from all over the world who were there. Um, and that was good for me in the end, but I, I think I was still kind of 
on my identity journey. So upon graduation of high school, I went to Morehouse College um, in, in Atlanta, Georgia. Morehouse is very much the opposite of, of Utah. It's a you know all male, predominantly black uh, college. And I, I went there because my father, when I was growing up, had yeah, he used to record shows on the on television before. So he would only allow us to watch an hour of TV a day. And he would pre-screen virtually everything we saw except for the news. And so he would like, at some point he would watch a show and if he thought it was worthy, he would record it. And then he would like, you know, let us make us watch it later on. And so one movie he made us watch was about uh, Morehouse. And and so I had in my mind, and the, the, the movie was so compelling. There were all these like really talented, uh, supremely gifted and well-spoken and confident black men um, who were featured in the documentary. And they were going off to do incredible things in the world. And so I thought, I think from a very early age, I saw that as a pathway. And so I ended up at Morehouse. Uh, and and then once I got to Morehouse, I went to Bates College in Maine for a year. I went to University of Cape Town in South Africa for a few months. And I think that's when I started to think seriously about the Rhodes Scholarship, uh, to be honest. I, I will say one thing, too. When I was younger, my dad um, made us watch a show. Um, that featured uh, Bill Cosby and Robert Culp. It's called a show called I Spy. And in the show, Bill Cosby, who I know is a loathsome figure, but wasn't when I was growing up, um, he was the Rhodes Scholar tennis player in the show. And Robert Culp was, played his white partner. And so, and, and my dad was like, he loved the fact that the black character in the show was the brains of the operation, more or less. And so I think when I was younger, I, you know, watched that show and, um, that's when I started, you know, the first, my first encounter with the Rhodes Scholarship, probably. But when I got to college, I began to think about the Rhodes as, you know, it's, it's funny because the Rhodes seems like so out there and impossible. And, and I didn't want to put all my eggs in that basket, but I thought like, if I'm able to get, find my way to Oxford, um, maybe I'll be able to figure out my life. So, um, yeah. Once you got to Oxford, because even, I mean, some of in my my background research, I've I've read in a few interviews that you talk about how you did find yourself in Oxford, and that that was that was the place where a lot of deep introspection happened for you. Is that right? Yeah, Oxford was yeah. I I think it's such an incredibly important part of my life story, an incredibly important part, and I didn't know how important it would be. I think when I was envisioning. If I'm being completely honest, I'd say that um, when I was growing up, I was completely besotted with uh, Star Trek and I watched a lot of Star Trek. And my secret hope and desire was that by the time I was 18, um, that there would be a Starfleet Academy, that we would have already begun corresponding with intelligent life from other planets and that they would all gather at some place and we'd all like. So by the time I was 16 and I figured out that that probably wasn't going to be the case, I started fixating on you know, what the kind of earth equivalent of that would be. Um, and, you know, Oxford seemed to be the place where, you know, a place where you have a bunch of super talented people from around the world who are, you know, for a time together and thinking about life and maybe plotting the future. Um, and so that's the way I kind of approached Oxford. I wasn't thinking so much about the my academic experiences at Oxford, though those were great as well for me. Um, but yeah, when I got to Oxford, I think the first thing I realized was that I, for the first time, I felt completely comfortable being myself in this place. Um, I had really long searching conversations with people who had, you know, I suppose, similar trajectories and similar ambitions. And it was an opportunity for us 
I think, to all kind of be really searingly honest with each other um, in a way that wasn't possible for me before, because I think in every context I'd been before, I was the person who was like super ambitious and super driven. And, you know, I, yeah, I was sort of famous for it. There was an exam. I'd go off for myself, you know, go off by myself for a week and people used to make fun of me for it. And I took school very seriously. And here I am at this place where everybody kind of did the same thing. And, and so it was, it was edifying and it was really comforting to be in that space. Um, and, you know, I think in some other alternate reality, I don't get an Oxford, I don't get the Rhodes Scholarship. And if I hadn't, I know for a fact that I would have, I, I would have had this desire to prove to other people that I was worthy and I was smart or whatever. And I would have, I'm sure, had gone to law school and, you know, in my mind before going to Oxford, I had this entire path laid out for myself. I was going to get a Rhodes Scholarship. I'd go to Oxford. Then I go to Yale Law School. Then I uh, clerk for someone. Then I clerk for a Supreme Court justice. And then, you know, I, you know, I had this entire thing. And uh, and when I got to Oxford, the one thing that happened when I was I, when I um, went for the second interview, because back then it was a two-tiered process, and I had the second interview, and they announced the, the roads who had won the roads. I didn't feel relief or elation. I didn't feel elation, I should say, or 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 excitement, I felt relief. And the reason I felt relief was because looking back, um, I finally, I felt like this is something I could give my parents. You know, my parents were very strict. They had really um, sort of major expectations for all their kids. And I felt like, okay, now I've proven to my parents, my father in particular, that I worked hard and that I've received recognition for it. So for me, the question at Oxford was, who, do, who the hell do I want to be? What do I want to do? And I had time for the first time in a long time to think about that. And so that was pivotal for me. Mm, I wonder, I was going to uh, let you give just your whole spiel, but I have to jump in <laughs> um, with, with a question because there was sorry, a part of a particular kind of black man. I mean, there's, there's definite um, similarities, right, across the story and your story. And there's one particular passage here where um, Tunde is describing the expectation of being a particular kind of black man. And I, I'll, I'll read, read out the, just the paragraph that in particular comes to mind and just what you were talking about with your Oxford experience. My objective during those years was to be embraced by others, to somehow make myself conventional in spite of everything about me that was foreign. There were times when I considered following another path away from my father and convention. There were times when I did so for a day, a week, sometimes months at a time. There were times when I dared to dream of the life that I'd have if the choice were entirely mine, but I always found my way back to reality. I think of those times often now, and I wonder where I would be if I'd had the fortitude to keep moving. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny because that, yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> Yeah. So I wonder then, so while you were at Oxford, the alternative path that was figuring out exactly who you wanted to be, what what was it about those conversations? What was it that kind of gave you the, well, the fortitude to keep moving in that direction? Yeah, I think part of it was, um, I, there's just, I felt so much freedom at Oxford. And also I, you know, I remember when I met my class for the first time and there were people in my class who were, there was a person in my class who was a playwright. And I thought, wow, you can get a Rhodes scholarship and be a theater person. And, you know, cause I, before I met my classmates, I had, I was so committed to proving that I belonged, that I had 
been reading The Economist for, you know, a few months before I had memorized the heads of state for everyone, you know, like every country in Europe. And that's because I thought we'd be having conversations about that sort of thing. And instead, we're having conversations about like Mean Girls or, you know, novels they had read and that sort of thing. And so I had closed off this entire like artistic part of myself because I thought this is the part that I need to kind of shelve if I'm going to be successful. Um, I can't be a creative person because that isn't, um, there isn't a kind of accepted and steady path to success if I'm a creative person. But if I, you know, do this, if I, you know, sort of focus on law or something else, there, there's a pathway to success that a lot of people have traveled on. And, you know, if you just work hard, you'll, I'll be able to do that as well. And so I think Oxford was the first time I thought, well, no, no, to, the creative path is available to me because all these other people are on that path. And why can't I be? And so when I arrived at Oxford, I really, again, I had not, I'd stopped reading novels, you know, really in college, because I think now looking back, I knew they had a pull on me. And I was afraid that if I kind of indulged in that too much, that I wouldn't, you know, sort of focus on my studies. It never occurred to me that I could be an art history major or just do English or something. To me, those were paths that didn't make sense at all. And furthermore, the notion of talking to my dad and say, hey, I'm going to be art, do art history, something that I just... I didn't want to have that conversation, but then I get to Oxford and I think, well, these two years are mine more or less. So what do I, what do I want to do? And one of the first things I did was that I acted in a play uh, called Six Degrees of Separation. Um, and I had done theater before high school. And then again, in high school, I'd sort of stepped away. Um, but that particular play was really important to me because when I was in college, one of my professors had, um, she one day she like created a special syllabus for me. And she said, you need to watch this film. And this film features Will Smith. And I saw a lot of myself in that character because in the movie, Will Smith plays uh, a character who, who says he's the son of Sidney Poitier. He's this very eloquent person. We don't know much about his history, but his entire life seems to be predicated on making these people, convincing them he's a suave person. We don't know much about his inner life. And, and I felt like when my professor showed me this this uh, show me this movie that I had been living my life in a similar way. And so it was a really interesting moment that, that I had a chance to do the play at Oxford. So doing the play, having long conversations on the Maudlin lawn, you know, with my friends or, you know, uh, going out and having a few drinks and just all of that was, was important. And all of that allowed me to figure out who I actually was and what made me happy as opposed to what would make other people happy. At what point did you start thinking about whether that creative side of yourself could be the primary version of yourself that you, you put forward and that you could follow writing as, as a profession and a vocation, I suppose. Yeah, it was incredibly scary, I have to be honest. Like, the, the even, I, I kind of backed my way into it, you know? Like, so I took a very academic approach to it initially, um, you know, after the play. And the play was important to me because, um, you know, I just had to read so much and, and learn so much in order to do that. And and I started reading, you know, sort of uh, uh, Carl Jung, for example, and and thinking a lot about modern art. And and so I was I was started all these kind of investigations during and after the play, I started going to London and visiting museums and watching lots of films and going to lots of plays. And so I started and initially I said, I'm doing this because I'm I'm an actor, <laughs> I'm doing this role. But then after the thing was over, I continued and it became a really important part of my life at Oxford. Um, and then I started, you know, I thought like, I'll start a project where I read a bunch of first novels by writers I admire. 
And so I bought a bunch of first novels and I was reading them and I was taking notes. And, you know, I wouldn't have admitted it to myself at the time, but I was trying to prepare. I was beginning to pre prepare myself for the life of a writer. Um, it wasn't something I was telling people, but um, it's something I took quite seriously. And, and I think, again, because I kind of put it in an academic framework for myself that I made it acceptable to myself. And then by my second year at Oxford, I thought um, I had joined this kind of informal writing group at Oxford where once every couple of weeks we'd exchange work and, and critique each other. And so, and I felt that maybe I, I had this idea that I wanted to kind of start working on a novel. And so I was working on my thesis and then my novel. And I thought I, I need to complete a novel. And so I did my, my second year at Oxford. It's not a good novel at all, but um, the kind of sheer joy that I felt doing it. Um, and even during the difficult moments, the fact that I felt compelled to move forward to me was an indication that this was something that I, I needed to be doing. But after you, after you finished at Oxford, you, you went and worked at Google for a bit, right? But then you eventually left the job at Google to go and become a poet. Talk us through that, that transition period. Yeah. So after, at the end of Oxford, um, I was like, I was in a really weird and gosh, I just, I was really struggling internally um, because there was a part of me that said, you need to get a job that makes sense, that, you know, can lead you on this trajectory to success and everything else. And there was another part of me that wanted desperately to kind of step aside and either go right or, or, or figure it out, just kind of be a bohemian person for a while and and figure out, you know, the kind of life that I, I wanted to lead. So part of it was like this, I felt this pressure from the whole Oxford experience, the whole Rhodes Scholar experience to kind of, as it were, live up to the convention, the, the conventional notion of that. And the other part of me repudiated that. And so Google, in a weird way, was a compromise. <laughs> I know it might not sound that way. Um, but when I was interviewing for the job, I made it abundantly clear throughout the process that I wanted to spend, you know, back then they used to emphasize this 20% um, this time thing they had where you could spend 20% of your time doing whatever you want based on this idea that you were the most fulfilled if you were pursuing your own goals. I think the point of it was that you were supposed to be spending 20% of your time doing something that could eventually help the company. But I kind of redefined it and said, you know, I, I, you know, I want to spend 20% of my time figuring out how to be, become a writer. And they accepted it, you know, so they said, you know, um, you can spend two or three hours a day. You can book a conference room, go in there and write. Um, they gave me a monthly book stipend because I said I really wanted to build up my personal library. Um, I wanted to learn Russian because I was really taken with like Russian novels at that point. So they paid for me to take Russian. I was not a very good student, I have to say. <laughs> Cyrillic was very difficult for me. But uh, yeah, and so for me, I thought this is a great compromise. I'm at this place where I'm doing like sort of public policy and I'm traveling all over the world. I was constantly at Heathrow. I was, I told them I wanted to spend a lot of time in the Middle East. And so I was in Israel all the time. I was in Eastern Europe all the time. Um, so, and I, I had a lot of responsibility. I was like 25, it was a great job, but it was, but as I continued in that role, I began to realize that there was a part of me that said, no, you actually want to spend time by yourself writing. You don't want to be, you know, like this is not the compromise for you at this point. And so I got the bonus, a bonus at the end of my first year. And I thought, okay, well, here's my exit plan. And I came back to the States. I had a job on the Obama campaign. Um, and so I took that. And then I, I left uh, right before he won, 
he won the presidency. And I thought, well, I'll spend a few months like figuring out my my life and then I'll try to go back into the administration. And then the financial crisis happened. And so for a year and a half, I didn't work and I was left to my own devices and it was really difficult. But in retrospect, probably the most important period of my life, because I really um, focused on myself as a human being and focused on becoming a better writer. That mm, I. I just see so many parallels in what you were saying and just conversations that I've had with friends as well around this wanting to lean into the uncertainty and explore, but on the other side, the, the tension between that and needing some certainty, something to fall back on and some structure, some kind of ladder to climb and just how scary it is to to pull out the ladder and just to, to lean into the uncertainty, I suppose. And that that period of time where after working at Google and after working on the Obama campaign, that must have that must have been a really hard time as well, the uncertainty of it. Were you tempted to to abandon the writing dream at that point? Yeah. I mean the, th- the one thing I, I want to make abundantly clear is that I think it becomes more difficult. The thing about being at Oxford, especially as a Rhodes Scholar, is that you have this award that says you're you're talented, you people recognize that. But you also become like, I think, incredibly risk averse as well. Just because now you're in this institution, you have this award attached to your name. People are expecting great things. There are all these conventional paths that people before you have taken to success. And now you feel that you have a responsibility to your family, to your friends, perhaps even to yourself, to go on one of those paths. And I felt that acutely when I was at Oxford. And um, and I think. The tragedy of that, though, is that you have all these incredibly, supremely talented people who could be doing all kinds of things to, you know, sort of fight the world's fight, as it were, um, who decide, well, gosh, I don't want to fail publicly or whatever, so I'll do this thing that a lot of other people are doing. And I, I was struck by the fact that, you know, we would have all these searching conversations with each other over pints of beer at various pubs at Oxford about the kinds of lives we wanted to lead. And then two or three years after, and I'm not maligning anyone at all. I, you know, I did the same myself, but two or three years after, you know, people at these consulting firms are doing the, the, the conventional things. And, um, and, and I thought like, okay, so what if I did take a risk with myself? For me, the roads said that I, I can now go do something crazy. You know, I can, since I did this, what else can I achieve? You know, that didn't seem possible before because the roads didn't seem possible. And here I am as a Rhodes Scholar. So what else is there for me to achieve that doesn't seem possible? And that's the approach I had. Um, I know for a fact, if if I could have escaped the writing thing, then I would have, you know, because it didn't make sense. Nobody around me understood it. I hadn't done an MFA, you know, the Master of Fine Arts, which most writers do. Um, I had no connections whatsoever in the publishing world. Um, so I, but I had this compulsion. I had to do it. I just could not escape it. I tried my best. And it seemed as if my life forced me into this corner that, you know, it said, no, this is what you have to do. And so I did have difficult moments when I, 2008, 2009, when I would go on Facebook, which was then the sort of dominant social media platform. And I'd see my friends, you know, getting promoted at their really nice jobs, vacationing all over the place. You know, I'd see them featured in the news, giving interviews. And I'm like, gosh, I'm not there. I'm horrible. I'm the failure of my class. I'm the, I'm the one. I'm the, I'm the black sheep. I definitely felt that. I didn't publish for, for, for four years at that point. You know, so I'm sending all this work out. It's all getting rejected. I had so many dark nights of the soul where I said, 
I don't know what I'm doing. Have I lost the plot completely? Have I completely like sort of, uh, have I, I, I have this, this scholarship, this great advantage. Have I somehow lost that? You know, like I had all these thoughts and, and yeah, they kept me up at night and I, I was in a really bad way. But at the same time, I thought like, gosh, if I work as hard at this as I did in school, something will happen. I just, you know, and I, so I, I had to kind of lean into this faith that there's a reason why I feel this way. There's a reason why I, I can't stop doing this. I, I want to know about some of the important people who have played a role in your story and like where this, where the the kind of the, the courage to keep at it comes from and who who's played a significant role in your life and kind of modeling that for you or does it do you think it's come entirely from within yeah that's a great question i mean i think because for me um my grand ambition at oxford was to become a great artist that was one and and so i definitely looked you know through the roads you know list of Rhodes scholars and looked to see if there were any um artists in our midst, and there are people like Chris Christopherson, for example, um, the great singer um, and, and songwriter, uh, Terrence Malick, the great filmmaker. I had not heard of Terrence Malick before, but um, as I was doing this research for myself, I, I, I started watching his films and found them incredibly moving and, and was, and that certainly gave me, um, I think a lot of, I gained a lot of confidence from the fact that you had this person who had decided to kind of, again, step off the beaten path and go off and be a filmmaker and was, was uh, praised for his, 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 his art. And so that became important to me. There were other moments too. I, at one time during the first couple of weeks of my class, I did a master's in comparative social policy. Um, my tutor, her name was Dr. Lynn Prince Cook. Um, she was reading my first paper uh, and she, she, I, I went into her office and she closed the door and she said, you know, I love the paper, but I have to talk to you about your paper. And I thought, what's going on here? And then she told me her, like this story about how we had never talked about this before. Like my, the things, the things I was struggling with this kind of creative path or whatever. And she said, she said for a long time, you know, I myself struggled with whether I wanted to become a creative person or an academic. And she talked about like spending years of her life, like doing writing creatively and and she you know for a time I guess had toured with Bob Marley or something and she but she said you know at a certain point you know I decided that that you know I wanted to be an academic and I, I and I focused on that and she said I think you're at a similar crossroads because I see in your work evidence you're a very strong writer and I see evidence of this kind of creative compulsion um, but I also see somebody who you know likes an argument and she said if you want to succeed as an academic you're going to have to leave a lot of that creative language aside and focus on the argument because like it, people don't care about that stuff. They care about the argument. Um, and there might be a few people who care about when it's going, when it's being peer reviewed, they're, they're examining the argument, not the, how beautiful the language is necessarily. And she said, but I don't want to snuff out that light. If there's any part of you that has that sort of desire here, this is the time to think about that. And that conversation, like, oh my gosh, it was, I was at the moment I'm thinking this way, the fact that somebody else could see evidence of that in my work really threw me for a loop. And I remember walking out of her office in a complete daze and going back to my room and just sitting in silence for a while and thinking she's right. Like, you know, because this is a moment that determines the rest of my life, right? If I decide, okay, no, I'm going to be a, an academic or go to law school, I will be living a very different life 20 years from now than if I say, what if I give myself a shot? And so that was certainly a moment when she, I mean, my, the kind of stakes were made very clear to me. And um, that was just, 
I was very happy that somebody had seen evidence of that creative impulse. And to me, that was a sign from the universe or whatever that you know, like I needed to, to think more deeply about pursuing a creative path. Do you feel like you've, um, in pursuing your creative path and I suppose um, taking the risk on it and giving it a go, do you feel like you've also though landed on that you've in some ways met the expectations that you had for yourself? Do you feel like you, for, so for instance, taking the, the kind of Rhodes mandate of fighting the world's fight, do you see that what you do today, do you think that that's a way of doing that anyway? Yeah, I think so. You know, the uh, the funny thing is that I'm still like involved in public policy. I, I lead a think tank um, in DC, and and so I'm constantly thinking about and even writing about public policy issues. And so um, I think that that I'm doing that perhaps in a more conventional way. But I certainly think that art. I'm among. I I don't. I think that the way that our society regards art is just really weird. I don't think that art is like a back page of the newspaper activity. I think it's a central human concern. And I think in addition to that, um, that we can't figure out who we are without art, that it's kind of a rendering of the human spirit and human ambition and, and human frailty um, in all kinds of mediums. And so for me, it's a central and core concern. And I think we figure out a lot more stuff and perhaps even be better about collaborating if we were more art focused than we are as a kind of, as a species. And so, for me, it's a it's a core part of the way that I regard the world and think about the world. Um, and uh, yeah, and so I, I I think that yeah, I one way, perhaps the most important way that I'm trying to fight the world's fight is is through art um, and not retreating at all from that in a way that I would have perhaps when I was at Oxford, and even after I would have apologized for it. and and I was always doing stuff in the dark. I was writing in the dark, not telling anyone about it now. you know, it, i I am. I always lead with that, you know, it's, um, and regardless of whatever else I might be doing, I consider myself to be an artist first. And I think it feeds into everything else I do. I care much greatly about social justice. I care about public policy, care about all these things, but I'm thinking about these things through the prism of art and, and connection. Mm. I think that's so inspiring also just to, because I think people know this at a, a deep level that, there are so many different ways to fight the world's fight. Uh, but there's it's as soon as you step off the, I, I mean the ladder that you have, right? As soon as, as soon as you step off that and you don't necessarily have it clear to you how you can follow ABC formula to do it, then it it just is scary. So I find it it's really inspiring to hear your thoughts on just how you can you can just do it in so many different ways, but also through using your own gifts to do it yeah we we are all equipped to do it that's the thing we are all equipped to do it we are all equipped to take the risk um and that's if anything that's what the committees have told us like you guys have the ability to do something that hasn't been done before and so i do think it's a tragedy that so many of us decide to do the things that everyone else has done before and part of it is fear it, it makes complete sense right like gosh there's that moment at your second year at oxford where you're like okay what's okay i won't spend the rest of my life going to this pub and hanging out with my friends and having the most searching, incredible conversations in my life. At some point, I'm gonna have to get out of here. And so that moment of reckoning is really difficult. I get that, I've been there, I felt it. Um, but I, I do think there's something to be said too for taking the leap. You know, if you've done this crazy thing and it's worked out for you, why not? So my, my next question on that is, uh, what's the next risk for you, Tobey? Great question, gosh, you know, um, 
you know, it's it's great to talk about this art thing on the other side of, you know, I guess that journey because uh, it was so difficult for so many years and um, and I knew it would work out, but, uh, I, you know, I w- it was still scary and there still wasn't much to show for it in the, in, during those, those years. Um, so I, I, I think that I would say now, um, yeah, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to live a life that enables me to kind of continue to produce great art and also have some impact on, you know, sort of policy. And, and I think um, for me, the great risk, the great thing that I I want to do is to try to, to be, to do well at both. You know, one thing that a number of people are telling me now, mentors, um, people I admire, I just had a conversation with someone a couple of days ago and he said to me, He's like, yeah, so this writing thing is working out and this other thing is working out. He said, at some point, you're going to have to take a decision to pay. Uh, you can't excel at both. Um, it's going to be too much of a, you know, too much time. Uh, it's just, there's, it's not possible. And so at some point you have to decide. And there is a part of me that feels that's true. I am, you know, not sleeping as much as I should. And life is really, really intense right now. Um and I'm not able, I'm not as productive in terms of writing. I had a novel that was due at the end of last year. I'm well past that deadline and probably won't be done for another few months. I'm not writing as much criticism as I would like. And then with respect to the day job, I'm not going to as many meetings on the Hill or whatever as I should be, right? Um, so yeah, it's, it's something I think about all the time. But again, I think, why not? Why the hell, why can't I do both? You know, maybe I have to figure out some way that, you know, hasn't been attempted or something, but I don't feel any less desire to kind of do great art that's still like a really a pronounced part of my soul if you will and at the same time I don't feel a desire to step back from some of the other work that I'm doing now so I have to figure out and the thing that's scary and exciting is how do I integrate these two things in a way that makes sense to all constituencies right that makes sense to the board you know if I how do I create a life that enables me to kind of step aside every now and then to do the creative work and at the same time with respect to my creative work how do I tell my publisher and agent, you know, like there's this other thing that I'm doing that's also important. Um, Because the publisher and agent, they're working with a lot of people who are just doing writing exclusively. And, you know, the board and other people I deal with during the day are used to dealing with people who just do public policy 24 seven. And the question is, how do I integrate those two things? And so that for me is a challenge that I'm facing right now that I desperately want to figure out. Well, I'm definitely going to be uh, watching with an attentive eye as you figure this out because I think that's uh, that's also I I think the the tension the the challenge that so many people are facing. How do you how do you juggle the multiple parts of yourself that you want to remain true to? To wrap up, I have a couple of kind of rapid fire questions for you that you don't need to feel the need to answer rapidly. the The first question is whether there's something new about yourself that you've learned in the past year? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, new that I've learned in the past year. Oh, gosh. You know what? I guess the one thing I've learned is, um, and I think this applies maybe to the entire pandemic, is I'm just accustomed to um, like pushing myself in extreme ways. And I think many of us in the Rhodes community can probably say the same. And for years, um, I, you know, if I need to do something, I'll just stay up all night and I'll just get it done. And, and, you know, like it's, there's been this really, I suppose, looking back kind of bad feedback loop because I can stay up all night and then do the presentation in the morning and it goes well, and then go about my day. And I've done that for years. And um, I think maybe four or five months, I came down with a really bad case of shingles 
it was just like really incredibly painful. Just, and um, I, my doctor said, you know, this is stress induced and you need to, you know, settle the hell down basically. And so uh, I, and so for the first time in a long time, I've been thinking like, okay, I need balance. I need balance. How do I get balance? How do I do that? And, um, and so I have learned that I, I need to like sort of, uh, I need to chill a little bit. I need to relax. I need to find pockets of time where I'm not just like producing. Um, and I think that's an important lesson. You know, I want to be on the planet for a while. And, you know, I think the way that I was living was probably not sustainable. So I, I've tried, I've been trying my best to kind of, um, which completely conflicts what I just said about sort of doing all this stuff, but, you know, trying to find a space to, you know, chill and relax and at the same time, like pursue my, my big ambitions and goals. So I think I've learned that I, I needed to, to, to hang, to chill a little and, and you know, pay attention to my body and pay attention to myself as well, you know. Second question for you is the the age old question of if you could have a meal with anyone alive or dead, who would you want to sit down and have a chat to? Gosh, what a question. Um, you know, I, 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 it's hard for me to say just one person, you know, like, because again, I just suppose this reflects my own fabricated life in a way, you know, because there's a part of me that like says, gosh, I would love to sit down with like, someone like John Berger, the great art historian and writer, somebody I deeply admire, who also was attuned to, to sort of social justice and politics and um, passed away a couple of years ago. And I just really admired his work and he's had a great impact on me. Um, or maybe someone like Wallace Shoinka, who's still with us. I've had a great opportunity to, I've met him a couple of times, but I've never had a chance to kind of sit down and just probe for a moment. I would love, because I admire his career. Uh, and his trajectory. And he's also somebody who was situated, you know, sort of between, um, you know, sort of activism and and art. Um, so I think those two, my, one of my favorite artists of all time is a, a poet named Tomas Tronstromer, uh, who had a really um, great impact on my artistic trajectory. Um, and then I think people, you know, conventional answers like, you know, Martin Luther King, one of the reasons I went to Morehouse was because he graduated from Morehouse. And, um, and I read his work obsessively as an undergraduate and um and uh yeah he had a and i just admire i admire people like him and um abraham lincoln and other people who were great writers and also because you know letter from a birmingham jail is just like a really compelling document and i i'm odd at the you know the idea that he's sitting in a jail somewhere and he's writing you know like this track that will influence social movements for generations it's just a really incredible sort of thing and um so yeah I, I kind of it sounds like you've got a great dinner party lined up <laughs> I want the dinner party route please forgive me <laughs> yeah absolutely and um final final question for you is the best advice that that you've received or some a piece of advice that has stuck with you that you feel like you just need to pay it forward huh yeah, that's a great question. I one addendum to my last Toni Morrison as well. I forgot to mention her. She's also critically important to me. Another empty chairs at the table. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make it 30 people. Alice Monroe, another person. Um, I think the most important advice is I think for me, the most important thing in my life is that I I have a tremendous amount of faith. And I know for a lot of people that is purely kind of in a religious context. And I'm asking folks to not think of it in those terms. I think you know, I had faith, for example, if you're not religious, if you are, of course, but, um, you know, I had faith when I kind of 
put in my application for the Rhodes Scholarship, you know, what a crazy thing to do. And, and it worked out. Um, and then I, you know, I had faith at Oxford and after I had faith, you know, for some reason, uh, I, I want to write. I don't know why it's not something that was part of my life plan when I was plotting everything when I was, you know, um, younger, but, but I, you know, and then even during the difficult and dark moments when nobody cared about the work and, and I was just like yelling into the void, you know, there was a sense of faith that brought me through those really difficult moments. And I think it's important for Rhodes Scholars, Oxford students, all of us who have been gifted, granted these incredible opportunities. It's just not, you know, again, if your path is, you know, the, I don't see this in a pejorative way, in the more conventional way, that's a wonderful thing and kudos to you. But if I, I think one sort of aspect of fighting the world's fight is, is having sort of faith that you might be doing something that's unconventional, but that it's your gift, right? We all have individual gifts and it, it's a probability that the special gift you have doesn't necessarily align with these sort of really strict paths out of Oxford that currently exist. So there's something to be said for listening to yourself and having the faith to pursue that to the end. That's really powerful. Have faith. Have faith. Yeah, have faith. Well, thank you, Toby. I I think I would love to keep talking to you for for hours on end, I think. Uh, even just, I mean, this is giving me, I think, the, the motivation that I need to go get back into the work that I have to do and that I want to be doing. So thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story with us. Uh, I, I know that it's been valuable for me and I, I'm confident that it's going to be the same for so many listeners as well. Thank you so much for your great questions and for the great conversation. I really appreciate it.